I believed that art should be fun and funny and weird and crazy and just, you know, something to make life more interesting. Welcome to The Meg Robinson Show, exploring the stories that make us who we are. I'm your host, Meg Robinson. Meet Satra Stalky, a successful artist who becomes a radiologist at the age of 51. Throughout his life, because of his love of both science and art, he was a bit of a square peg in a round hole. He created his own path wherever he went, and he wasn't afraid to take risks. From an early age, Satra was interested in art and sculpture. Yeah, I always loved uh, drawing and making stuff more than more three-dimensional things. Sculptures, like I would create little junkyards with my old cars that had been stepped on and ruined and stuff so I'd just like make a big mud pile and throw them all in and put a sign on it you know and just little kind of diorama kind of things I would mess around with electronics I had a a perpetually fiddling habit with um, remote control uh, electronics and uh, so the house the house I grew up in had a nice workshop in the basement so that was kind of like my hangout area. Um, my dad was a doctor. He always wanted me to be a doctor. He always wanted me to take over his practice. Even though your dad wanted you to be a physician and take over his practice, you did not think when you entered college that you were going to go in that direction? I was kind of interested in the subject matter, but uh, it wasn't. I wasn't actively pursuing that. Here's our first example of Satra, the square peg, trying to fit into the round hole. It happened as an undergraduate. My, my advisor was in physics, and I wanted to take some art classes. And uh, he told me that if I was going to be a physics major, there was no room for art classes. And then my best friend found out if you were an art major, you didn't have to have an advisor. So I became an art major. But most of the time I took science and engineering. Well, I did, I mean, I took a lot of science that was the same as the pre-med to kind of appease my dad. Not many art majors take science and engineering. So this is the first instance of his making his own path. You majored in art, but your your subspecialty... Photography, yeah. Okay, that's interesting, because so, that ties into the future. Yeah. Okay, so that's Well, it ties into everything. Cause yeah, so photography, photography was the main, your main focus. I yes. somehow didn't get that. Okay, you graduate from college, yeah. then what happened? I ended up, so I, I applied all over the place. Satra applied to a number of art schools. He was rejected by his first choice, but wound up at University of Chicago with a full scholarship. But unfortunately, this became another example of a square peg fitting into a round hole. It turned out that the professors there, perhaps not surprisingly, given University of Chicago's reputation, um, number one, when people heard I was an 
in art grad school and I was going to the University of Chicago, people would say, oh, I didn't know they had an art school. And, <laughs> and also, the University of Chicago is a very conservative uh, educational institution. And all of the professors, with one exception, who did not yet have tenure, were modernists. And you were doing what kind of photography? It doesn't do? matter what kind of photography you do for, for a modernist. But oh, I mon was, so I'm unclear. Yeah, educate, that's okay. Educate me on so, that. So, well, modernism believes in the, uh, um, the unique, um, there's a word for it that I'm trying to remember, the original. So everything is about the original in modernism, and it's about the medium which is manipulated by the human. Um, Did they not view, I mean, they had a photography program of some sort. Right. So it's, how can they have a photography program and invite you to be a part of that and yet not believe in photography? That is an excellent question and the very first question I asked them. When they started talking about, well, you don't have an original, and like, it's photography. Um, so it was very quickly clear to me that I was in the wrong place. So what about your sculpture? How did that play in? So the sculpture that I was doing was um, these sort of uh, platonic, meaning platonic shapes, you know, like that exist out there in space that are perfect shapes of different household appliances. So um, vacuum cleaners, uh, for, for instance. Um, and they were somewhat perplexed by them. I'm not sure why. I, I think they just, uh, we just didn't get along. Give an example of the kind of photographs you made. I would, in my studio, create a space specifically to be photographed made out of marks, like paintings, or let's say I'd make a artificial vacuum cleaner, and I would construct it out of actual vacuum cleaner parts, but a lot of it was also marked or painted. <clears throat> the purpose of making a photograph of that scene is to, to unify all of those parts, and then there's a certain thing that your brain does about photographs where it tries to reconstruct the three-dimensional space that's, that's presented to you in a two-dimensional way. So I would take advantage of that to make sort of illusions on the, on the photo paper, the surface of the photo paper, to make it not clear what was a drawing or a painting and what was actually a physical object. You were playing around in part with what was real and what may not have been real. And you were playing around with what was two-dimensional and three-dimensional. Exactly. And doing that in a way that makes people, that draws people into the photograph because they're looking at it and they're not sure exactly what they're seeing. Is that a fair? That's right on the button. Okay. So it turns out, that particular realm of visual communication is extremely irritating to a modernist. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. Um, I lucky, didn't know that. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lucky me. My advisor happened to be the one guy without tenure who was a videographer, um, who was a natural, like that's who you'd naturally choose um, if you were in photography. And he did not want to stick his neck out for me because he was up for tenure. It was his seventh year and he didn't want to make any waves. So, uh, you know, I got some direction from them. What, what do you, what should I be doing? You know, what do you want? What do you want my images to look like so that you'll like them? Okay. So that's, there's your first clue. I'm totally in the wrong place. Anyway. So first quarter officially I'm on probation. So that's, I'm on academic probation, grades withheld. Second quarter comes, it's all the same stuff over again. Uh, they brought, they called me into the office and I swear to God, this is exactly what they said. After which I laughed hysterically and you'll know why. Um, is that, um, Satra, we feel that, uh, your skill levels haven't improved to the point which we feel appropriate, but, uh, we, we feel that you should know that if you are, if you have your grades held two times in a row, so if you're put on probation for two quarters in a row in graduate school, you have to leave. You're basically expelled. So what we're going to do is um, we're not going to tell the dean that we're putting you on probation for a second time. So it's going to be double secret probation. <laughs> double and of course, being a big fan of Animal House, <laughs> I started laughing hysterically. So at the University of Chicago, the way you were graded was at the end of the quarter, you'd have a huge critique of all the work you'd made during that. Uh, quarter and my last quarter, um, we had a we had a room that had a twenty foot high ceiling, and it had it was approximately fifty or sixty feet long and about twenty feet wide, and I had the entire room covered with work um, and sculptures hanging from the ceiling and sculptures hanging on the wall and photographs all over and paintings that they had told me to make to practice my painting um, everywhere. So this was all done in one quarter. I lived in my studio. And um, the faculty came out and also uh, uh, one of the, uh, the head of the art history department came over for the critique. And um, so the faculty are all standing there and they're looking at all the work and discussing it amongst themselves until they are going to say what they're going to say. And they basically said the same thing, is that your skill levels aren't appropriate for graduate level work, and so on and so on. And then the art history professor pointed at one of the sculptures and he said, how much do you want for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so after the meeting, I called the Art Institute and I said, hey, I'm down here at the art. I'm down here at University of Chicago, and you guys accepted me last year to be in the photography department. 
and I wondered, could I come up next year? And and they said, oh, Satra Stalky? Yeah, sure. You got a spot. No problem. Awesome. Yeah. So I said, oh, great. So I was at the Art Institute of Chicago another year and a half. So some stuff transferred, some stuff didn't. At that point, you continued with your photography. Right. I continued doing exactly the same stuff I had been doing before. And it was like night and day. I kept doing the same things. And right away, they were just like, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. This is great. You know, keep it up. Satra finally had people who believed in him and supported him. So after graduating from the Art Institute of Chicago, he stayed in Chicago teaching photography, and he was also a film projectionist to make money on the side. Eventually, he got a teaching tech job at University of Maryland in Baltimore, and he stayed there for three years. He met his future wife there and eventually moved to New York City in 2001. Unlike his large studio in Baltimore, he lived in a 300-square-foot apartment in Manhattan. And what did your wife, what does she do? She was editor, uh, managing editor at um, Stereophile magazine. And uh, so she was doing that. I moved up without a job, but I found a job within a couple of months in a textile design factory. So I worked with a bunch of designers and I was kind of the, the person who made their designs come to reality. What about your sculpture during this time? The sculpture, I make fictional household appliances. So I'm still very obsessed with machines that do things for us. So um, they tend to look very space age, but retro futuristic space age, like a Jetsons kind of. Things have antennas, things have smooth shapes, and they're shiny, and, um, and they are, they're very colorful. Um, and they're fictional, and they're appliances. Right. The, well, their functions are fictional. <laughs> For example, um, one of my favorites, which I, oh, I forgot to bring it, uh, one of them, but one of my favorites is called the Charismatic and uh, it increases your charisma. That's what it does. Oh, so. but should a machine like that exist? <laughs> well, it does. <laughs> so many uh, people would find that useful. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's about the size of a large television, and it has antennas, and it's very shiny. And the closer you get to it, the, it makes a noise. So the closer you get to it, the higher the noise. So if you're about... Four feet away, it's an extremely low noise, which makes the whole floor shake. It's like a very low noise. And the closer you get to it, the higher it goes. And this I is mean, a real noise. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's, it... Yeah, it's totally real. Okay. And what's, um, the, what's the design idea behind that, that as you get closer to this charismatic, it increases in noise? Uh, well, it's just the way the electronics work. And it was fun. So I don't, I don't have any intellectual reason. I suppose I could come up with one. You can feel, you can see, you can make it make any sound you want. Um, so it's a lot of fun. How big is it? I mean, just... It's about the size of a person, if a person was all curled up mm-hmm. in a ball. I mean, that's pretty unusual. I mean, this concept of coming up with fictional appliances. Where does that come from, do you think? I think consumerism and the... Uh, 
the one one product leads to another. I'm I'm somewhat obsessed with consumer culture uh, and its effect upon our psyche in the same way that uh, I described earlier about visual, the way we experience visual information and how we process it. It's a similar process in the consumer-driven culture. So one appliance leads to another. So if you have a charismatic, well, you you got to somehow be able to find out how much charisma you have, right? So you have to have a charisma monitor. You know, you got to have you have to have another appliance that monitors the level of char- your charisma. Yes, so that I makes have one total of those sense. As, so I have one of those as well, <laughs> and it's a much taller instrument. Um, so uh, th- all of these, all of these. Uh, Appliances have their own story behind them, their own function. There's whimsy involved in oh, this. Yeah. A lot of whimsy. Lots of it. Art should be fun. Yeah. So there, there was. That's one of those direct uh, oppositional philosophies to modernism. That, that <laughs> art should be fun. That art should be fun, and that it's also, though, at a deeper level. I think you're commenting on culture, making us think about. The relationship between the external things and who we are internally. That's going on in my mind. And whether that actually gets across to anyone else, I'm not sure how far people actually get into those kind of thoughts. Um, because maybe there's a stopping point at which you just start just having fun and making the fun sounds and you're not really thinking about, well, what does it mean that this is actually a piece of art in a museum and I'm a person and, you know, all of these kind of serious thoughts. And you're okay with that if the person who's reacting to your art just is having fun. Sure. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything more. But in your head, there is a kind of, unless I'm putting words in your mouth or thoughts in your head, but there is a kind of deeper reflection that's going on well all of that's there and it's there to be had um but it's not my goal for you to think the same things i'm thinking and um i'm i'm sure people have had those thoughts i mean i've had people talk to me about them and they have had those thoughts so maybe there is some natural resonance between ideas you have while you're making an object and that object's impact on another person uh, in some way. So in New York, um, I moved my studio to the, the inside of a computer. Um, I tried out a bunch of, what, what I had decided was um, basically to be, a, to be a sculptor. But to make the sculptures, uh, I couldn't do it in a 300 square foot space anymore so I was making them virtually on a computer right you could make you could create a studio space you could create all your lightings you could create the view of your perspective and you could create objects and you could paint them and you could uh, or you could polish them up or you could you know all the kind of things it was very realistic and um, that was actually one of my tests was to recreate one of my own uh, photographs using that software and it did a beautiful job. 
So I, um, I bought it and I used that to create sculptures, which until now, um, some of them have only been virtual. I'm now creating them, finally. Figured out how I'm gonna continue to make art. Found a job in August. My first day was Monday, September 10th, 2001. By the way, August 31st, I was on the 91st floor of the World Trade Center, so I'm glad that didn't happen then. Um, <laughs> God. So I'm working 900 yards from the World Trade Center, and uh, I go to work Tuesday morning, and it's a beautiful day. Oh my gosh. Perfect day. And I come out of the subway, and I'm walking along, and there's three people standing on the street. Um, looking up, and I walk up to him and say, hey, what's going on? He's like, oh man, an airplane just ran into the World Trade Center. Oh, really? Oh my gosh. Let me see, you know, and I look up there. Oh, what a terrible accident. Well, gotta get going to work. So I'm going to work, and probably about 20 minutes after I got to work, the second plane hit, so then it was pretty clear it wasn't an accident. That's an entirely different story, but that, that, uh, that was amazing. Did it have an impact on you personally in terms of your art or your work? Yes. How so? Uh, very deeply personally. Um, I saw things that they didn't show on TV. Sorry. No. Well, the first thing I did was to make sure everybody knew I was okay. My wife worked on 14th Street and 5th Avenue. Email wouldn't work after the tower fell, the first tower because for some reason somebody thought it would be a good idea to run all of our cables under the World Trade Center for the internet on Manhattan Island. And, uh, but the phones still worked, so um, I called my wife and we made arrangements that she would start walking south and I would start walking north, and we'd meet on 7th Avenue somewhere. And uh, we did, and once we met, um, we decided to go right to St. Vincent's to stand in line to give blood for all the victims. And we got there, and there was a long line, and the streets were full of um, cots for the victims. And we waited and waited and waited, and nobody came. Eventually they came out, probably, it was probably around 1 p.m. or 2, and they, somebody came out of the hospital and said, you can all go home because nobody survived. And the only way you could leave at that point, the Lincoln Tunnel was shut down, all the roads were shut down, the only way you could get out was um, through Penn Station on a train, of which we were really lucky to get a spot on a non-reserved, so we could stand at least. And um, we went to Delaware and waited it out. Mm -hmm. I suppose, now that I think about it, that might have been some of the first, I, I realized, why was my first instinct to go stand in line to give blood? Was that my number one priority? Maybe that was the beginning of something. It wasn't too long after that that I decided to volunteer at uh, Lenox Hill Hospital emergency room because that was the closest 
major hospital to me besides New York Hospital, which was right around the corner, because I lived on 34th Street between 1st and 2nd. And my job was to take the patients from emergency to CT up on the whatever floor it was. I don't know. Maybe Cat scan. Yeah, cat scan. So I would take them there, and then I, I was supposed to wait until they were done, and then I would take them back. So that went on for a while. I was looking at the images as they came up. They were interesting, you know, being an image-based person. And, you know, I'd ask questions about them and they'd say, oh, this is, these are slices. They're, you know, of the person and here you can see their kidney and here you can see that. And I said, oh, well, what does that mean? I said, well, you know, if you really want to know about these images, you need to talk to the radiologist. So um, they introduced me to the radiologist who was this really nice guy. He told me a lot about what he was looking at, you know, and the weeks went by. And after a while, um, I started to be a lot more interested in what was going on with these images. They're directly applicable to the human body, and they're actually two-dimensional representations of three-dimensional things. And you look at them in sequence, one after the other, to create a three-dimensional object in your mind that's the human body. It's exactly the same thing as my artwork. Exactly. Exactly the same. That's incredible. Yeah. Really. And the other thing is that it's your artwork, but it's also when you started, when you moved your sculpture to 3D um, program on the computer, it was the same thing too, right? <laughs> right. So it's almost so. like it was meant to be that everything kind of were the building blocks of this path that you were going on. It's, it strikes me. Right. Yeah. Now, how old were you at this point? 40. Mm-hmm. So after a while, I, talk, I was talking with the radiologist who now I considered a friend. And, um, and I said, you know, your job is so awesome. I think I'd like to do this too. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, oh, well, you got to be a doctor first. There's a little, a little requirement. <laughs> Which I did not know <laughs> at the time. And, um, and so I said, oh. And then I thought, this job is really cool. Okay. Yet again, square peg, round hole. Satra is not going to be deterred by barriers. It doesn't matter that his path is unusual because he's following his passions as he has done his whole life. And so I started to look into what it would take to become a doctor. Actually, to become a radiologist. First step, become a doctor. Okay, I know I want to be a radiologist. So it was, it was kind of a different way than most doctors go through to choose their specialty. Usually they go to med school and find out what they're interested in. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but I knew the whole time I wanted to be a radiologist. So all I had to do was get some medical school to accept me. And uh, then I'd be okay. And so I started calling around to med schools to see if they'd accept a 40-year-old artist. You know, <laughs> and what did they say? Well, NYU said, no, forget it. And this was a very funny conversation, not unlike the, my experience at University of Chicago. I didn't get to talk to an actual administrator, but I talked to the secretary in the admissions department. At what? At, at NYU. Because mm-hmm. that was the closest one. It literally was 
less than a block away because I lived on 34th between 1st and 2nd. And so I, I called there and I said, I gave, told him the story, you know, hey, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I want to apply to med school. Can I get in? And, and they said, 40? No. Just like um, that. We like them fresh. That's a direct quote. We like them fresh. <laughs> so, oh. so, so I didn't did, apply to NYU. <laughs> gee, you didn't? I'm I so didn't. I'm so surprised. Okay, I applied everywhere. I mean, I played. I didn't apply to Grenada. So, but I did apply <laughs> everywhere else. How many um, How many schools did you apply to? Oh my gosh, roughly hundred something. A hundred yeah. school. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you were you were determined. Yes. And what about your uh, science training? Did you have the... Oh, that's re- a good story. <laughs> did you have the... So, rec- well, you did some undergraduate so work. I, yeah. So I graduated, what, in 1988 or something. 1988. And um, I, uh, I had taken all those pre-med classes to please my dad. And uh, so that was part of like I'd call up. So I called up Cornell, right? Um, hey, I'm 40. I'm an artist. I'm interested in becoming a doctor. Can I apply to your school? Um, well, have you satisfied all the undergraduate requirements? I said, I did back in the early 80s. And they said, okay. <laughs> uh, all you have to do is take the MCAT, which is the entrance exam, and we'll see you then. And so it was great. Okay. And I wanted, I wanted my number one school choice was to go to um, SUNY Downstate because they were a state school, so they were going to be less expensive. They were right there in Brooklyn, easy to get to. Um, Cornell was up on 70th, 71st, 70th or 71st Street and 1st Avenue, um, but they were really expensive, you know, because it's Cornell. And Columbia I didn't apply to, um, so got all my applications out. Uh, SUNY Downstate was extremely quick. They let me know in less than two weeks that I was rejected. (laughs) (laughs) So I was pretty unhappy about that um, because that was my top choice. I was accepted eventually at Upstate, SUNY Upstate. So then I was like, yeah, it's going to happen. But I don't want to move out of Manhattan. So um, Einstein rejected me. Uh, Cornell put me on a waiting list. And so I was like, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you're rejected. You're on a waiting list. And uh, so I pestered them nonstop. I emailed. You're talking about Cornell. Cornell. I emailed. I called. They would say, oh, waiting list, waiting list. And I'd email and call. Oh, waiting list, waiting list. And then I said, look, I need to know now. (laughs) <laughs> I need to make plans to move to upstate if, if I'm not going to be accepted here. Otherwise, I can stay here. And um, they sent me an email uh, that I was too afraid to open in reply. And so I had my wife read it, and it was a big congratulations. You've been accepted. And they gave me a full-ride scholarship. Wow. So, That's completely awesome. Yeah. So that was great. So it ended up actually being cheaper than going to SUNY Downstate and. I didn't have to move as far. That was that. Um, 
I went through med school. It was really, really, really hard. I can imagine you hadn't yeah. been in school in a long time. You're not a kid. Yeah. You know, and those there's advantages of, though. <laughs> what are the advantages? Ah, uh, you're just more mature. You kind of can see things for what they are in a in a larger perspective. And okay, so you get a B. It's not an A. You know, it's still okay. You know, there's always that saying, which I'm sure your husband knows, is what do they call the person who graduates last in his class in med school? And the answer is? Doctor. <laughs> Here you are, let's say, from age 40 to 44, roughly. Um, yeah. in, in well, it was the following year, so I guess I was 41. 41 to, to 45. And uh, were you the oldest person? Oh, yes. No, wait. There, were, there was one older person than me. But there were a few of us that were in our 40s in a class of 100. So how, how was that for you to, um, to be an outlier in terms of age? It wasn't really. I think we were all equals. I mean, the, the one thing I really like about Cornell is that every single person that they accept there is really a great person, you know? And they don't, they're not into cliques. Everybody's a team. Um, I really felt welcome. Nobody treated me like I was different. So then you had to do your radiology uh, residency. <laughs> yes, which is five years long. So I wasn't even halfway yet. But I did my internship in Pittsburgh and I did my radiology residency in Danville, Pennsylvania. And um, then I did my fellowship at Hopkins. Um, so it didn't even count fellowships. So f fellowships in the sixth year that you're going to be doing that. So I finished my fellowship finally in 2016, 13 years after I thought, hey, it would be fun to be a doctor <laughs> or a, a radiologist. Years. So now it's it's 2017. So you've been practicing for a year, uh, roughly? A year and a half, yeah. I know from talking to you that you went back to your art. As soon as I started practicing, so now I chose a job, which doesn't require me to work weekends or have call hours or evenings. So I, I just work during the day, Monday through Friday. And all of the rest of the time is for my family and for making art. And you have two kids. I have two right? kids, yeah. You did this art before, all of this representational playing around with two 3D dimensions. Now you're a radiologist. And how did that have an impact on the kind of art that you did? And how did your art have an impact, if, if it d did at all, on, on your practice of radiology? Well, the... Let me start with the second one, because the, the art impact on the radiology is very clear um, from the beginning, was that uh, in residency, I had absolutely no difficulty understanding what I was seeing and, and able to turn everything into a three-dimensional idea in my head. Because this is something I'd been doing since I was an undergrad freshman as an art student, right? So... The, the images were easy for me. 
the words were very hard for me because I'd never been a person of words. And so I spent my residency basically learning how to speak, medical speak, about what I was seeing. Whereas my colleagues didn't seem to have the first clue about what they were looking at. And, but they knew all the medical terminology really well. Because <laughs> that's, that's what they've been doing since yeah. they were undergrads. Right. And um, so it was kind of a opposite. We kind of came together. And there's, there's even studies that trace the synapses, the visual synapses in a first-year radiology resident compared to a, a senior graduating resident, and it's a dramatic increase in the synapses of the visual cortex. Um, Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So the brain changes a lot through residency. and um, But the things I noticed right away was that uh, I had a great facility with images and location. So part of the things you need to, to learn as a radiology resident is how to put a needle in an abscess and suck out the fluid or how to put a needle in a uh, particular tissue to sample it, to s send it to pathology, um, how to just, you know, imagine the tip of a needle in three dimensions and translate that to the movement of your arm and fingers to create the perfect path to reach where you're going. That is something is very easy for me and always has been. And um, for, for most people, it's quite difficult because you can't see it. You have to imagine it and you have to imagine its path and you have to imagine its location as it goes along that path. And you can use radiology tools to confirm that you're going where you're going. And a lot of the times you see, oh, ooh, I went the wrong way, got to back up and redo it. And that's normal and that's fine. It doesn't make any difference. But one thing I noticed was I usually didn't have to stop. I didn't usually have to redo it. I usually went right exactly where I wanted to go. And um, even though you might not have remembered the name of the place where you were going, sure. no, I'm just teasing. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just teasing I you. made it to the thingy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that round object over yeah. there, or whatever it's called. Tuma. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So you you got inspired, and I wanted to hear how this happened to uh, take scans of everyday objects. Can you talk about sure. that? Just naturally being an artist, um, I started thinking, you know, these machines, they're just like cameras, except they just give you, uh, they give you a, a whole lot of images <laughs> that stack on top of each other instead of just one image. So um, I just thought, well, what's, what's inside an appliance, right? What's inside a toaster? You can use these, uh, you can use these machines to look inside the things I'm obsessed with, the household appliances. And so then I'm thinking that, and of course, always being fun. Well, what about toys? You know, what's inside? At the time, my kids were really little. So my, my son was an infant and he had little pull toys and things like that with stuff inside them that vibrated. And I thought, well, what is the inside of that? So just take it in and scan it. Uh, along one of my research days. And uh, uh, that's how it kind of began. I don't think it was really, um, it wasn't really a, 
a direct decision. It just kind of like happened. I asked permission ahead of time. Hey, can I use your scanner to make art? And they said, kind of looked at the ceiling and sure, we can support the arts. <laughs> <laughs> But do you have your own scanner, actually? Mm. No, or, but I use the scanners at work. I see. Okay, yeah. and they're they're fine with that. Yep. Yeah. That was part of my my uh, interview process was to guarantee that I would be able to use them because where I was for residency, um, they wouldn't allow it. So um, they made that very clear. They said, "Don't try any of that art stuff here, buddy." So what is what has been the reaction to your scanning all these objects who who sees it and how do they react to it oh there's been a huge reaction um it all i did it for quite a while and it turned out somebody who worked with me at the research facility had a friend who was an editor on gizmodo mm -hmm. which i had never heard of and um, describe what it is kind of a news site for um, interesting things related to technology mm -hmm. they got a hold of a scan I did of an iPhone at the time and they thought it was fun and so they put it up and um, put really really nice little article about just you know look at this this is pretty fun isn't it and then um the comments this so i'm from the generation of course that isn't always online and i was not as sophisticated at understanding how people comment on things and there's a lot of people who just like to say mean things online and it doesn't really mean that they're mean or anything they're just maybe they're just apathetic or maybe whatever but there were all of these comments about how horrible it is that I was scanning something when there were people in Africa that that couldn't even have CT scans and um, you know and then somebody would comment to that like well why don't you send them over to you know New York to their scanner or why don't you send the scanner to Africa you know they'd like point out what a ridiculous criticism that was you know and um, and then there's people like that's not real. He obviously faked that, you know, and all of these kind of things that were just kind of fun. And then um, my phone rang at 3 a.m. one night, and I ignored it. And I got up in the morning, and it was Good Morning America. Um, they wanted to have me on and talk about what I was doing, and um, and of course, you know. And then they called at 5 a.m. and said, sorry, it's too late. <laughs> oh, fleeting, then, fleeting fame. Yeah, but then, um, uh, yeah, that's the way. We love we love you. Go away, go away. And uh, then the Today Show, though, sent me an email, I guess it was, and um, asked if I would be on. And I said, sure. You know, and it was easy because it's right there in New York. And you can see their interview on the website. Your future as a doctor is pretty well set. What are your plans for your art at this point? So right now, um, I have a very clear path for what I'm making. Um, I'm beginning with all of the things that I wanted to make that I made on my computer 
um, that I wanted to make in reality, but didn't have the space <laughs> or the time. Um, one of them is a status monitor, and that's, that's ready to be painted. Um, a status monitor? Yes. Oh, to measure your status. Yes, yes, whatever that is. And, um, and I'm making an oracle. It's called the Visionary. So I've, I've just printed that out. I got, a, I got this 3D printer that prints humongous stuff. It's huge for a 3D printer. And um, I spent three months calibrating it <laughs> until it was printing perfectly. And um, so I've been... Printing 3D printers, the ones that I've seen, can really not print right. very They're large puny. objects. They're useless. So how, <laughs> how big does your... It prints, print... it prints um, 16 by 16 by 20 inches. So even though that's not super huge, um, it's, it's about as large as I want my appliances to be, as the largest of them. So the, um, the status monitor, for example, is about 10 inches high and about six or seven inches in circumference, it's sort of a cone-shaped thing. And, um, but the visionary, which I just finished, it took 76 and a half hours to print. Um, uh, that one is, is pretty large. It's uh, 18 or 20 inches wide. I printed it sideways and uh, um, 18 or 20 inches high. How many appliances do you have now that you've created? A dozen. Mm -hmm. so. so you're continue. So you're kind of going in two directions. You're continuing with the scanning of common so, objects. Okay. Yes. Well, and I'm going to be scanning these too. So I'm going to be making fictional appliances with anatomy, you know, because they've got electronics inside. And I'm going to scan them when I'm done with them and make make prints of them as well. Um, so I'll have three dimensional and two dimensional and interactive stuff that's just fun. To me, there are a lot of lessons in, um, in your life. I mean, the fact that it's never too late. Follow your heart and it's never too late. <laughs> never too late. And also that art and science can uh, complement each other. We think about them as two separate silos, but the fact is, they do intersect. The only difference between art and science is what, what are you thinking about? Otherwise, they're identical, in my experience. And I've had a foot in both worlds, so. And, and we, we say, you know, we talk about the left brain or the right brain person, you know, the one that's more artistic and the one that's more scientific, but maybe that's the wrong construct. Obviously, there's people who are artists or artistic and they can't seem to do anything else. Um, and there's people who are scientists who can't seem to do anything else. Um, but their thought processes about what they're thinking about are identical. And to be able to cross the two, I just, I guess I just don't think there's a divide there for it to be in the same person. That's unusual, but for it, for me anyway, the thought, the thought processes aren't any different and I relate extremely well to other artists and they think just like I do. And I relate extremely well to other scientists and they think just like I do.
So it must be just the same. Do you enjoy radiology? Oh, yeah. It's great. Um, the only thing I don't like about it is it's always dark. It's so dark. You have to be in the dark all day. And uh, so you can see the images best because they're glowing images. Um, it's beautiful. The images are beautiful. And um, once in a while, I just stop and look at them as images themselves. It's a reminder of how wonderful visual, the visual sense is the best thing ever. And the cool thing about radiology is not only do you get to look at beautiful images every day, all day, but you also get to make a difference in people's lives and um, usually for the better. And uh, you get to help your professional colleagues make better decisions about how to make a difference in their pa patients' lives. And um, that feels good. Check out Satra's artwork, including MRIs of everyday objects by visiting his website, which is www.radiologyart.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-L-O-G-Y-A-R-T dot com. I would love to hear from you. Send me an email if you have ideas, thoughts, or feedback. I read them all. That's hello at themegrobinsonshow.com. Hope you'll tune in next time for more of the stories that make us who we are. I'm Meg Robinson. To wrap things up, here's The Scan Man. Scan, you are the man, you understand when things are right or defective now. You've got the key, and you can see, cause you're a doctor detective. Work in the dark, reading your MRIs with your expert eyes, you see. Right from the start, you look at each part. Every picture is a mystery scan. You are the man. You know the clues to use to see what's there inside. And when you're done, you are the one who knows there's nothing left to hide.